Let's pray together. Father, would you answer this prayer that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word? We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us. That you would chain my tongue to only give this morning what your church here in this place needs from your word. And that which is eternal and lasting that you've given us, revealed to us in the scriptures would take root and bear fruit in our lives. That we might be built up and encouraged as your people. So speak to us today through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we've got a lot to cover in just a handful of verses. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and one of our volunteers would love to give one to you. Uh, we're in the middle of our study in Paul's letters of First and Second Thessalonians um, called Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow. And um, next week we'll pause uh, for our uh, preparation for our missions week. So we'll have a guest speaker next week and then we'll pick it up in chapter 5 uh, the week after. Actually, Pastor Devin's going to tackle that uh, one starting in, in the beginning of chapter 5. And we'll get through that in a couple weeks. And then after that, we'll start Second Thessalonians. So we're taking them together as one. Now, at this point in Paul's letter, Paul is the author of this letter to the Thessalonians. Paul has already transitioned, as we talked about last week, from thanksgiving and praise for all that God has done to practical help, practical instruction. Here's how to live now in light of everything I've already taught you, Paul says. If you remember, the Thessalonians are relatively new believers in Jesus. They're young in their faith. And so the, every experience of life that they encounter now runs through this new grid for them of what does my faith now, the faith that I have in Jesus, how, what does it now have to say about or how does it apply to fill in the blank? Whatever it is they're experiencing now. And we can relate to this just a little bit, right? We go through transitions in life all the time. As kids, we get really excited about that new baby brother or sister, right? Can, can, you, can you imagine that? My, my parents tell the story that when my, my little brother, who's three and a half years younger than me, I have a couple of siblings, but my brother, when, I, when he was born, apparently, I don't remember this, apparently at three and a half, I, ran, I went running down the hospital hallway yelling, I've got a brother! I had no idea how that was going to turn out. And for a number of years there, it got kind of dicey, as siblings sometimes do. But I love my brother Chris very much, right? But we, so we know what that's like. Or, or maybe, the, have, you, have you watched the little video of the kid who's really excited about his first day of kindergarten? Like super pumped to go to school? But we can only guess what that will be like. Because we don't know. Or we're excited about heading off to college. Or preparing to get married. Or buying your first house or having your first kid. And we can do all our best to prepare for what we think that's going to be like. But in the end, it's all theoretical. Right? We don't actually know until we're in it. We don't actually know what it means to be a husband until we have to actually be one. We don't know what it means to be a parent until we actually have our own kids. And we find ourselves going back to, did I really say when I watched that parent with their kid at the restaurant, I wouldn't do it that way? I said that. I've said both of those things. Man, when we have kids, 
It's all theory until they actually are there with you and you have to parent them. Right? Or remodeling a house or whatever the, whatever the, 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 the task is, the new job, the new city, the new thing. It's all theoretical until we're in it. And so we can do our best to anticipate challenges, hardships, etc. We can be, do our best to, to anticipate those things. Like when the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. Or when they come in and say, you know, um, this diagnosis, the, this, this thing we see in, in your scan is worse than we thought. Like we want to, in, in those hard situations, to be able to respond with confident, God-trusting faith. But again, until we're faced with them, right? So, so these things that we believe get tested in real time. We can do our best to prepare, but there's still a part of us that's maybe cautious or a little bit fearful or maybe discouraged because we don't really know what comes next or what it will be like, right? Because we're finite. We are not infinite. We have limits. And we struggle with all that we can't see and can't fully understand. I think that's part of what the heart that Paul's addressing here with these Thessalonians. That they're experiencing life now, which is the life that everyone else experiences, but they're experiencing now in light of what they believe about Jesus, which is new to them. And they're like, how does this new faith now affect the way I see all these things and experience this life? Life and death. And These Thessalonians appear to be experiencing loss and death as Christians for the first time. It's not that they've never lost anyone before, but now they're going, well, hold on a second. We have this faith now. We have this hope now. What does that mean for these who are, who are dying amongst us? And so Paul has told them, well, here's the hope you have in Jesus and the hope of his glorious return. And yet they're now attending funerals of fellow brothers and sisters. And they begin to have questions about death and life and what comes next. And Paul writes, he says, to inform them, and I think to inform us, that although they might be unsure about life and what comes next, at times, Paul's saying, as we live and die, because Jesus died and rose again, we can be sure that we will always be with him. That's the anchor point he's giving them in the midst of all this unknown. That as we live and die, because Jesus died and rose again, we can be sure that we will always be with him. We'll find that here, I think, in this text. So let's read our text this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We'll just read here to the end of the chapter. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. Excuse me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, Paul says in verse 13 and verse 18, his goals for this section of text, he tells everyone, here's why I'm writing this to you. I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant of what's true. 
And in verse 18, he says, I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage one another with this truth. I want to help you. I want to help shore up these doubts and fears and worries. And I want to build you up. It's the, the bookends around this passage that Paul gives. And so the passage is kind of broken down like this. I don't want you to be uninformed because as Jesus died and rose again, it's a reminder that we will always be with the Lord, so encourage each other with this truth. And Paul's theology, which I think is a good biblical framework, comes into view here. Paul sees all of life in two categories. This age, the one in which we're living, and the age to come, the one that will be. This age where we live was established. Jesus was revealed as God's Messiah. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he established this age in which we live. And Paul seems living in this day almost always to be looking forward to that day when Christ will return just as he promised. So Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians and he's encouraging you and he's encouraging me that as we live now as Christians, we live in between this day and that day when Christ returns just as he promised. Which is where Paul starts to kind of peel back the layers and give some stuff for the Thessalonians and for us to chew on. So between the, the truth of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then between that and that day when Jesus comes again in glory to consummate his reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, he says, here's how we live in light of that. Well, living in this age and longing for the age to come, Paul's informing us and encouraging us in a couple of areas. One, how we view death. Two, how we view living. And three, a little glimpse of what that day just might look like. How we view death, how we view living, and what it will be like on that day. So let's pick this apart a little bit and look at the text. First, looking at how Paul's encouraging us, in light of all this, how do we view death? And he uses the phrases, he uses these words, sleeping and rising. He says, so because Jesus died and rose again, so he's anchoring all of his encouragement, his hope, in the work of Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again conquering death. He says, because Jesus did that, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. And Paul uses this phrase, asleep, in reference to those who have died. And you might think, why does he do that? I don't think this is just a gentle parenting of a kid trying to tell them what happened to their puppy. He's just asleep. Like we, As parents, we, we might mitigate hard truths sometimes by softening the blow, right? He went to go live on the farm. Right? That's not what... Paul's doing here. He's not trying to like use uh, kid gloves with the Thessalonians. He's not just being shy about death. The idea of death as sleeping is not a made up concept, but Paul seems to ground his assurance in the reality that because Jesus died and rose again, death for the Christian is temporary. He ties that to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Now remember, as we said at the beginning, these Thessalonians are young Christians, likely experiencing death as Christians for the first time. So they have this vision now they've been given of glorious hope in Jesus they haven't had before. And then someone dies and they go, what am I supposed to do with this? Do they, do they miss out? Are we all supposed to just like be around when he comes back? Like what, what's happened now? 
What happens to those who have died? Do they, do they miss out on this resurrection that we're hoping for? That seems to be the question Paul's addressing. And Paul, is, in, in essence, says, don't worry. In Christ Jesus, death isn't permanent and refers to them as asleep. Now, here's what I think Paul means. He, he doesn't mean that their bodies are still living, like a sleeping person's body is breathing, right? You all slept last night, probably, most of you, right? And you breathed in and out involuntarily. Your brain does that. Your heart kept beating all night, right? You're not going, you're not, as you're sleeping, going, breathe out. No, you're sleeping. That's not what Paul's saying. I don't think he also means that their soul is in some kind of limbo state because in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he's not talking about some kind of soul sleep either. I think what Paul's saying is this. He's saying that death for the, for the Christian is equivalent to how we understand sleeping because you going to sleep presupposes you'll wake up barring something happening, right? It, going to sleep assumes I'm going to get up in the morning. And so that as we die as Christians, there's the assumption that you and I will wake again in the morning of God's glory with the Lord. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at when he's talking about those of you, who, those who have fallen asleep. It's a temporary state for those who are followers of Jesus because it assumes you will wake. The hope for Paul is tied to what Christ has already done. Death is no longer a curse, a permanent curse, because death is dead in the death of Christ. So while we physically die, we are in a very real way sleeping only to rise again that glorious morning. Verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then he reinforces it at the end of verse 16. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first. The reason Paul can refer to them as sleeping is because he said, God will raise up those who have fallen asleep. They will raise first because Jesus died and rose again. We will die and rise with him. We will get up in the morning. That's the picture Paul's given to, these, to encourage this young church to go, this is not permanent. In Christ Jesus, this is not permanent. It's temporary. They'll wake in the morning. And then he adds this little component at the end of 13 that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And I, and I want to be careful here. Paul doesn't say we don't grieve. Okay, Paul's not calling us to some kind of weird stoicism where we detach ourselves from emotions because of faith in Jesus. He's not saying that. Rather, Paul is saying that our faith in Jesus' death and in his resurrection and his promise of return shapes how we feel. It actually informs our grief. We now have hope in the midst of grief, where before, if it was, if it was the end and that was, that was it, that's hopeless. And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand. You no longer grieve that way because there's hope. We grieve differently than those whose hope is only in just making the most out of this life. So I just want to be careful here. Don't let anyone tell you that loss doesn't hurt. Because it does. There are scars and griefs that we bear every day. Maybe it's short term. Maybe it's only been a few months or a few years. Or maybe it's been many years in loss. 
And we still bear some of that because we live here in this age. My dad passed away about two and a half years ago. And I can't tell you how many times I would love to be able to sit down with him and ask him his advice on something or tell him something that's happened. Hey, you know, it would have been really great when you saw Ben at the football game. He threw an interception, but it was okay. He was cool about it. My dad would love that. And I would love to to talk to him about those things. I'm not going to pretend, and I don't think Paul would have us ignore the reality of grief. But what he is saying here is that even though there is grief, I have hope. I have hope, a deep and abiding hope that my dad, because he had faith in Christ Jesus, sleeps now and will be raised on that day together. And this is why Paul can say to this young church, this is how you can grieve, but grieve like those who have hope. You have hope in the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's anchoring them to you. And I want us to think about that a little bit. How much is our view of death framed in, filtered, if you will, by the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection? Do we actually think about life and death in terms of the hope we have in the life to come? How are you doing with your griefs? So that we can grieve death, but don't have to fear it. Doesn't have to destroy us. So as you experience grief and loss, how can we grieve deeply and also grieve with hope? So this is how Paul is trying to encourage them. This is how to face death in light of Jesus' death and resurrection and his promise to return. He's giving them a, a, a framework for, here's how to understand death now as a Christian. It's not all Paul does. Paul also addresses those who are still living. How do we view living in this age, while looking forward to the age to come. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul Paul is very clear here. He says this comes as a word from the Lord. Paul is grounding all of this as if from God, as opposed to just man's opinions or ideas. And this is important for us. As we get into the details, especially as we get into the details of what this day might be like. He says, uh, those who are alive will not precede. Those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this might seem redundant, right? Paul already said that the dead in Christ will rise first. So obviously, those who are alive would not be first, they'd be second, (laughs) But part of what Paul's saying here, I think, is that we who are living, we're not going anywhere until God says. We're not checking out early, but God will raise the dead and then it's go time. And implied in this idea is something I'd like to just tease out briefly. That we are called, we view living now as we, we just keep living as God called us until we don't. This, this, this sets the stage for, for us, then, to guard against the pitfall of escapism or just kind of like white-knuckling our faith until the end. Can I just hold on, hold on, bunker down until the end? Escapism is the desire to, well, do what it says. Escape. And so rather than hopeful endurance through trial and suffering, an escapist mentality is only hopeful that in the age to come, we just 
we'll kind of like sneak out of, of, of all the hard things just by the skin of our teeth at the end. And that's not the kind of encouragement Paul's giving them here. It's not the intention of, of looking forward to Christ's return. Yes, the Lord will come back. Yes, he will make all wrongs right. And as Paul says, and we'll get into it, um, continuing in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, that when the Lord Jesus comes, he will bring justice down on those who have done evil and it will comfort all those who have been afflicted. That's good news. But it's not to escape suffering, rather to endure suffering through the lenses of both Christ's suffering and triumph over suffering and death and the hopeful promise that he'll return in his timing, in his way to make all things right. So as we live, we're not just holding on for your dear life, holding on so tight to the end, like the worst ride you've ever been on, like just get me off this thing. We who live keep living until God says otherwise. I heard one pastor say, I'm invincible until I'm not. And he's not saying live foolishly. He's just saying all of my life, every day is in the hand of the Lord. And so I'm going to do my best by the power of the Spirit to live faithfully and hopefully until I don't. Until I'm gone. Until he says. And then Paul says, it's not only those who are asleep who will be raised, those who are living when Jesus splits the sky and descends. Verse 17, he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them. Those who are living will be caught up together with them. That is the dead in Christ who've been raised, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to talk a little bit in just a second about meeting the Lord here in just a moment. But but Paul says we too will be caught up together with them. So, so to carry on this theme that Paul began at the beginning of this chapter, this idea of like walking and living with hope, we're living by light. We're living life by faith. And in a moment, Paul says, we will be caught up in a glorious reunion of the saints. And so we view life and death between these two glorious anchors, Paul says. That Jesus died and rose again, conquering death and securing for us resurrection life. And between that anchor and this anchor, that he's coming back, just as he said he was, to inaugurate this life together with Christ forever. Paul says we live between these two anchors. And then, to stir up their hope, Paul gives them a little glimpse of what that day kind of looks like. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit here, maybe stir up a little worship ourselves. Now, when we start to get into the details of Christ's return, or what Paul calls the last days, what is known as the the study of eschatology, the study of the end of things, which is theology around the end times and judgment and what comes next in the age to come. There are some key and important anchor points. And there is lots of room for speculation and attempting to fill in the gaps with possibilities. And as always, we try to do when we approach eschatology, I'm going to hammer on the sure things and attempt to address the other things with as much clarity as we can while allowing enough room for mystery and trusting by faith that even though some of those things are less clear. All right? So here's what Paul says that that day is going to look and sound and feel like. He says, The Lord himself will descend, and we will all, those who have died and those who are still living, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 
those two components. The Lord will descend and all of his people will be caught up to meet with him. First, the Lord will descend. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Luke, who wrote both Luke's gospel and Acts, tells us what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and about Jesus' ascension to heaven. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like. But the, the, the disciples had gathered now together, and they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time, the, the disciples were still waiting for a Messiah who would restore the earthly kingdom. And Jesus responds, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And here Jesus is setting the stage to guard against unhelpful speculation. And we'll move down verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. He says, but, so it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Speaking of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. And then in verse 9, he says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He lifts into the sky and is covered by a cloud. And they're just staring at the sky. And I know they're just staring at the sky because verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels standing there, messengers of the Lord, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? (laughs) I, I don't know. He just went into the sky. Right? Why, what are you looking for? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go. I love that. Jesus ascends up through the sky and the promise is he'll come back the same way. Now this is uncontroversial when it comes to eschatology. No matter what you think about how everything else is going to go down, one thing everyone believes that Jesus is coming back agrees on is that he's going to come back in the way that he left. In that, he went up, he's coming back down. Everyone holds to that, I think. And and then Paul gives a little glimpse of what it's going to sound like, which is a great kind of anchor point. Not just like the, the abstract truth of like he's going up and he's coming back down, but listen to this. This is what Paul says it'll sound like. Christ will descend with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. This cry of command gives connotations. It's, it's the shout of the commander of the army, in essence, calling out the order to advance. It's the charge call. This is King Jesus leading his army to advance upon the earth. The cry of command. The voice of an archangel. This, is, this sounds a lot like the call of the subcommanders relaying the command of the king and leading their regiments into battle. And the sound of the trumpet of God. This is the blast of the trumpet that precedes the coming of the king into the city or that precedes the call of the army to charge. Now, is the trumpet of God a literal trumpet? I'm not sure, but the imagery here is that as the coming of Jesus splits the sky visually, a sound will ring out that will split the ears of every inhabitant of the earth. Not only will every eye see him coming, every ear will hear him coming. That's the picture Paul paints here. Christ will descend, and it'll look and sound like that. 
The other thing Paul says will happen on that day, he says, and we will go out to meet the Lord. Now, before I unpack this part of how Paul describes that day, I want us to not lose sight of something really remarkable. The glorious reality of verse 17, that we will always be with the Lord. I don't want us to miss this primary encouragement for Paul to the church. That we will always be with the Lord. Because Jesus died and rose again, we are sure that when he returns to gather up his people, we know that we will be with him forever. And I say that because no matter the the exactness of the details and the timing of the events to come, we can and should, as Christians, share in this as a glorious thing that we will always be with Him. And we cannot let our enemy divide us on the exact when, when we are sure of the what. Okay? With that, on that day when the Lord descends and the trumpet sounds, verse 16 and 17, the dead in Christ will rise. Hallelujah. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds in a great reunion. Again, hallelujah. To meet the Lord in the air. Which is an interesting phrase. That phrase, to meet, in the Greek, looks a lot like this. I think I have it up on the screen. English pronunciation is something along these lines. Ace apentesin. And literally translates as for a meeting. Caught up in the clouds for a meeting. This is an in-person meeting, by the way. This is not a Zoom call, as now we are all very familiar with. Right? Caught up in the clouds for a meeting. And this phrase, used in this way, is used in uh, three places in the New Testament. Three. So to get a picture of what this phrase might mean, In context, I want to look at those other two places where it's used. We find this exact phrase used in Acts 28 and in Matthew 25. First, Acts 28, Paul is on his way to Rome. So this is used in like a real-time situation. Paul is on his way to Rome. At the end of verse 14, he says, As we came to Rome, verse 15 says, The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apias and three taverns to meet us. Here's that word, to meet us. Is that same phrase. Paul is on his way into Rome, and those who are anticipating his arrival leave Rome and go out to meet him on the road and welcome him back into Rome. They, they go out as a welcome party and bring him back with them. Now, the Apian Way or the Apian Road, as a side note, is a very famous and well-known ancient road into Rome. And the Three Taverns was a stopping and gathering place where actually designed for meeting up with travelers and merchants Along the way. So Paul's friends are waiting for him in Rome. Here he's on his way and go out to meet him on the path and welcome him back with them to Rome. That's the picture I have here. If you want to put the slide up, the next slide, where Paul's on his way into Rome. The house is where he's going. His friends come out to meet him and they all go back together. Okay, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 28. Real life situation, Paul's telling about his travels. Here's what happened. Our friends came out to meet us, and we went back. Now, Matthew 25. This is the second place this phrase we see in the New Testament. Jesus is teaching in parables about the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, 
Jesus says, will be like ten virgins with lamps who are waiting for a bridegroom. Five of them had already had oil for their lamps. Jesus calls them wise. They're prepared. And five of them didn't have any oil for their lamps yet. Jesus calls them foolish. And as they're waiting for this groom, they fall asleep because he's delayed. They fall asleep. Verse 6 of Matthew 25. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And they all kind of get rustled out of their sleep. Get ready to go. And that's that word again in verse 6. Come out to meet him. Those who were ready, those whose lamps were full of oil, whose lamps were prepared, they went out to meet him. While the foolish ones had to, in the middle of the night, it's midnight, go find someone who could sell them oil. And verse 10 says, while they were going out to buy oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready, who met him, went back with him to the wedding feast, the marriage feast that was prepared and the door was shut, Jesus says. Again, the bridegroom is on his way and those who are ready go out to welcome him and then they continue all the way in, in this case, to the marriage feast. Now, as an aside, I think Jesus is very clearly speaking of that day, this day we're talking about, and his second coming in this parable. Especially when you read verse 13 of that passage where Jesus says, Watch therefore, so you, for you neither know the day nor the hour. The bridegroom is on his way in. Those who are prepared to welcome him go out to meet him. And they go together into the marriage feast. So this passage from Thessalonians is framed in much the same way. We will meet the Lord in the air. And without stirring too many pots, I want to be just really clear on where I land on this. I don't think this verse gives credence, this verse itself, to the idea of the church just being taken away at this time for some, to some other place. It appears that all of the redeemed, those who have fallen asleep and those who are still alive, will welcome their conquering king as he comes. And we'll read a little more in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, that at, when he comes, he will come with justice to repay the wicked and to ease those who are suffering and afflicted. That all happens in real time. So I think the picture that Paul is painting here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is this. That the, that the king, the conquering king Jesus, is on his way. See a pattern? Is on his way, and those who are his will rise and be gathered up to meet him in the air for a meeting. And we will serve as a joyful welcome party as the Lord continues his entrance to the city, as he continues his conquest of his enemies, as he continues the consummation that is the bringing to final completion the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And in this, Paul says, encourage one another with this. Now, more than just an exercise in studying eschatological theological positions, the question is, Okay, fine. What's the takeaway from a passage like this? And I think there can be a handful of things. I'm just going to highlight a couple. There's a caution and a remembrance for us as we think about his coming to be ready because he will come at a time of his choosing, of the choosing of the Father, rather, that we will not necessarily expect. So we need to be ready so as not to be lulled to sleep by the cares of the world and find ourselves too busy Or like the parable in Matthew 25, find ourselves with no oil in our lamps. We'll talk about this a little bit in a couple weeks. 
Perhaps, too, there's some needed perspective for us that we can gain about death. That we have this cultural fear and avoidance of death. And is there something about the life to come which helps reform our ideas and our fears about death? Or even our lives? What is truly important for us? What things might be okay or even good, but come at the cost of being a major distraction from those things that are best for us? It could be any number of these things, or even other things that you're thinking about as you take this passage, and by the Holy Spirit, it's getting pressed down into your heart and mind. But all of those things go into the bucket, I think, of this reality, that you and I are being challenged to consider everything. Everything. Life. Death. Decisions, unknowns, hopes, dreams, disappointments, opportunities in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us now and in light of that day when all we see now in part will be on full display. This is the outworking, I think, of a passage like this. How we can live in between Jesus' completed work of the cross and the empty grave and an expectation for his glorious return. And that because of these two anchors, we are never alone and never without hope. There are lots of times when we may be unsure about what's next. In fact, I guarantee there will be. But as we live and die, we can be encouraged by these two truths. That because Jesus died and rose again, and because he's coming back, we can be sure that we will always, always always be with him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the encouragement of your word. That you are gracious to remind us of these things that we know to be true and so often forget. So often get lost in the shuffle of other things and busyness. To remember the simple reality that in your death and resurrection... You have secured for us hope and life. And we need not fear the unknown. We need not fear death. Because all of that now has been brought under your rule. Not just over all of creation, but you, Jesus, in conquering death, put an end to death. Proving your superiority over it. Would you stir our hearts with a fresh affection for both of these things? Cause our hearts to worship you afresh as we gaze upon your death and resurrection for us and all that it has purchased for us. That we might remember afresh what it means applied to our lives that we now are free in you, Christ Jesus. And would you pull away the distractions, the the crustiness of the world that, that clouds our eyes and we lose sight of the glorious reality that you're coming again. Would you build up and encourage your church in these two, with these two anchors? So as, even as we come to the table and we look at the bread and the cup in remembrance of your death, that it's proclaiming your death until you come again when everything, everything will be made new. Encourage your church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.